Hello and welcome back to another episode of Blush. I'm your host, Heva. I hope everyone's having a beautiful, lovely day. I've been trying to record for hours, but I couldn't because my smoke detector was losing its mind. So I live in a pretty big apartment for New York City, you know, not to brag, (laughs) Um, probably not for much longer. I got a great COVID deal and can't imagine that my landlord won't want to raise it unreasonably when it's time for lease review. Nevertheless, I live in a pretty big apartment and there are 1,000 smoke detectors in it approximately. Like I haven't counted, but I think we're somewhere at like 950. Um, No, but for real, there's uh, just kind of a crazy number of smoke detectors and the number of times that the batteries have gone out and I've had to contact them. Also, my ceilings are crazy high. So like it's not like even a normal ladder wouldn't reach it. So someone has to come to do it for me. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe I just like play up like the helpless girl. And so they just do these things that like generally, I think if you're in a normal building situation, people don't come fit, like change your light bulbs or your smoke detector batteries for you, do they? But yeah, no, every time shit like that happens, I just hit up my landlord and I'm like, nah, I need help. Um, okay, so... I am in the middle of meditating and I hear beep, beep, beep. And I'm like, oh, okay. He about just like ignore it. And like 10 seconds later, beep, beep, beep. And I'm like, just trying to, you know, stay focused on my meditation, which I got a lot of practice in this weekend being at my parents' house, but I'll get to that later. So I'm just, you know, trying to tune it out. And it's like, beep, 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 beep. and finally I'm like, you know what? This is a device that is intended to detect fire. So maybe instead of ignoring its very loud sounds, again, it is intended to be loud enough to wake you up in the event of a fire. Maybe I should go check and make sure there's no fucking fire. Um, There wasn't, but, you know, obviously I couldn't record with it going off. Although I will say I listened to this podcast and... There was an episode that was like two hours long and you're going to know where the story is going because of the setup to it, but whatever, I'll share it anyway. So one day I'm in my sauna blanket and uh, I hear a smoke detector. And as I've told you, there are a million in this apartment and the batteries die at various points. So I've gone through this many, many times now and So I hear a smoke detector chirping. Now, in all fairness, usually when the battery's dying and it chirps, it's not a beep, beep, beep like I was hearing this morning. It's more like an isolated beep. Nevertheless, I hear that beep and I'm like, oh, fuck, another one of my smoke detector batteries is dying. And I'm trying to figure out which one it is. And I just could not figure it out. So I'm out of the sauna blanket and then I'm like in the bathroom and I hear it in the bathroom and I'm like, well, there's no smoke detector anywhere near the bathroom. Where could this possibly be coming from? Is it from my bedroom? And then I'm in the kitchen, like doing something. And it's like, it's coming from next to my head at all times. And then like a little bit later, I don't even hear it anymore. So I'm like, all right, whatever, like whatever the problem was, clearly it's resolved. So I'll just move on. And then the next day it starts again. And it's this thing. It's like literally like I'm hearing it from right next to my head. So I hit up my landlord and he's like, yeah, 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 I'll send out the guy to come fix it for you. And I was like, great. Thank you so much. And then it like stops again. And then it starts again. This keeps happening. And then I finish this podcast episode and I go to leave a comment. It's on Patreon. So I go to leave a comment on that post on Patreon. And I saw someone else commented and was like, did anyone else lose their mind while listening to this podcast episode trying to figure out where the fuck the like dying smoke detector is in their house? It was in the fucking podcast. That's why it sounded like it was coming from next to my head at all times because my phone was quite literally next to my head at all times. And um, the guy did end up showing up and I didn't want to admit it. So I was just like, "Mm, yeah, I think it's that one. Thank you. (laughs) They just like 
change the batteries to a smoke detector. Yeah, I don't know what was going on this morning, but I mean, I think he just changed the batteries again. I, I like the number of times that this man has come over to my place and changed batteries on a smoke detector. Like he must hate me. Ah, anyway, I hope everyone's doing okay with the heat. I have noticed in New York City that people, I don't know, maybe people who are just kind of like on the cusp of mental infirmity just go fully over the line as it gets hotter. Like last week, I'm walking my dog and my dog, you know, does her number two. So I pick it up in a dog poop bag, you know, as one does. And we're walking towards the trash can to throw it away. And we're passing by this woman, a very like well put together woman. Like, you know, I I mean, I don't remember what she was wearing, but she's very clean and tidy and organized and seems very, you know, socially well adjusted, I'll say. And as we're passing her, she looks me dead in the eye and mutters to me, stop flinging dog poop at me, you fucking psycho. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) What are you talking? Like, I literally look down at my hands because she is so well put together. And I, on the other hand, look like if Shrek was run over by a truck every single day. So I'm like, well, obviously she's right and I'm wrong. And like, clearly I must be flinging dog poop at her because why the fuck else would she say that to me? Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. But then I make eye contact with the traffic guard who's like, yeah, she was saying some weird shit across the street too. I don't like, I really don't think it's just you. But yeah, I don't know something about the heat. It just, it brings out the crazy and I don't know. I'm kind of here for it because my entire childhood, I was so fucking bored. Like there just was not a, enough entertainment in the world to fill me up. And so when people start acting a little bit unhinged, I'm kind of into it. And I think that's probably a big part of why I act a little bit unhinged all the time. It just, it spices shit up. You know, what can I say? Um, Speaking of spicing things up, we've been spending a lot of time at the beach and by the beach, I mean, shitty New York city beaches like Rockaway, but whatever, given Given the fact that it's a beach that's technically inside New York City, I think Rockaway does pretty well for itself. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know all about my pubic hair journey, (laughs) the content that everyone's asking for. Um, So I used to shave exclusively. And if you are someone who shaves your pubic hair, I have some tips for you. It's going to sound wild. It's going to sound crazy. It's going to sound unhinged. But I'm telling you, it's the real deal. You want to use a dry razor on dry skin. I know that that just sounds like a recipe for razor burn. But the thing is, pubic hair is thick enough. And now this only really applies if you are someone who has like thick pubic hair. You know what I mean? Like there are some people I know who are just really, really blonde, Aryan, fair skinned people who have that kind of like wispy, thin, blonde pubic hair. It's not going to work on pubic hair like that. You have to have like, you know, the Brillo pad style (laughs) thick hair on your pubes for this to work. The something about the thickness of the hair prevents the razor from getting into your skin. I'm telling you, it'll perfectly exfoliate your skin. It'll perfectly take the hair off and you will not get even a bit of razor burn. It's wild. It sounds insane. It works. Dry razor on dry skin, not a hint of moisture anywhere. If there's even a hint of moisture, it all goes to shit. It has to be dry, dry, dry. Anyway, I used to be a shaving girly my entire life up until... I don't know, last summer-ish, last fall, decided to try waxing, kept with the waxing. And then the last time I got waxed, which was, I I don't fucking know, like a few weeks, months ago, 
I was like, this is torture. This hurts so much. I don't understand why I'm doing this. This is like ridiculous. Fuck the patriarchy. I mean, I went on a whole like feminist moment and then I decided I still do want to be hairless down there just because it is my personal preference and I do just enjoy the cleanliness of it. Although is there maybe internalized misogyny or societal programming there that makes me feel that way? Who knows? Maybe. Nevertheless, I decided I still want to do something. And the person who waxed me the last time was like, honestly, you should just do laser. Like, this is insane. Because also, my hair grows back at different times. So even at like fresh out of a wax, I'd still have a few hairs there that just weren't long enough for the wax. And so I was like, never perfectly, perfectly hairless. Although I'd still be down to continue getting my asshole waxed because that doesn't really hurt that much. But I don't really think they offer that as a standalone service <laughs> although I would really enjoy seeing the reaction if I went in and was like can I just get my asshole waxed they'd be like we hate you <laughs> no <laughs> anyway um so I decided to get lasered and you have to shave before you get lasered I still have a million questions about the laser so I did it once and literally the next day I had stubble like, I thought you were going to be hairless for a while. I thought it takes a while for the hair to come back. Apparently, that is not the case. I, I'm truly soliciting feedback on the laser situation because I am dumbfounded by the whole experience. Like, what did I pay all that money for? Anyway... <laughs> As a result, uh, I was pretty stubbly at the beach and I just kind of was like, you know what? I literally don't give a fuck. Is this a radical act of feminism? I would like to think so. I'm a grown ass woman. This is what grown ass vulvas look like. There's hair. I mean, it wasn't so insane. Like it wasn't like a full bush, you know, peeking out of the edges or anything, but you could definitely see a little stubble here and there. Anyway, it got me thinking a lot about the history of pubic hair, or I guess like more specifically the history of pubic hair removal. So I did a bit of a deep dive and I thought I'd share because, you know, this is largely a podcast where we talk about vulvas, pubic hair, and deep dives into shit that no one gives a shit about. But you know, it's just, it's, it's like, um, what do they call it? Party trivia. That's literally not what it's called. People are probably screaming at their phones right now. What's it called? It's like small talk for a party, a cocktail party, info cocktail party fodder. I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean though? I think it's, it's something you can bring up at a party, I guess, because who doesn't talk about pubic hair at parties? Okay. So razors and tweezers were invented in ancient Egypt. That is also the same place that invented makeup. And, um, people also would uh, use sugaring, which is kind of similar to wax. They make like a sticky substance out of sugar. It's also done a lot in Iran. So I'm very familiar with sugaring and people would, um, sugar off or wax uh, or, uh, shave their pubes. Um, then during the middle ages, uh, pubic hair removal was quite uncommon. And that also includes like leg and armpits and things like that. During the Renaissance, women used arsenic to remove hair. Arsenic, aka poison. The trick, if you could call it that, was to leave the poison on for long enough to kill the hair, but not so long that it also kills your skin. Reminds me quite a bit of using Nair when I was younger. Do you remember that? That like hair removal cream that burns the shit out of your skin if you're even like the teensiest bit not careful with it. Use that for a hot minute. Don't recommend. Then in the 1910s to the 1920s, women's magazines started running ads for hair removal products, namely Gillette razors, and really started painting hair as like dirty and not likable. Um, as a direct result of that, women's pits became pretty hairless. 
Um, in the 1950s, shaven, scantily clad models appeared in Playboy magazine. In the 1960s, hairy pits made a bit of a comeback. They were merely a marker of social activism. They didn't really make a comeback with everyone, but they certainly did with the counterculture. In 1987, the first Brazilian wax salon opened in the United States. In the 1990s, landing strips and triangles were very popular. Um, In the year 2000, the Brazilian wax was mentioned in a little show called Sex in the City, and Brazilian waxes really took off from there. A 2016 study found that 84% of women groom. Now, I will say grooming your pubic hair is a bit of a double-sided coin. One side of it is that pubic lice, a.k.a. crabs, is a, a virtually dead disease now because people are so hairless down there because, like, I guess the pubic lice have to live in the hair, similar to lice on your head. I don't know how different the two are. Um, but yeah, so crabs, really not so much of a concern these days because of it. But on the other hand, pubic hair may have a role in sexual pleasure. Um, I don't know if like my own pubic hair would play a role in sexual pleasure, but I will say that I do enjoy my boyfriend. Um, also, if it's your first time listening, we refer to my boyfriend as Ozzy on the podcast. It's not his name. Yes, he is Australian. Um, I do enjoy him having pubic hair. I think it feels really nice. Like it's kind of like tickles your clit a little. I don't know. I think it feels nice. Um, but also pubic hair can prevent bacteria from reaching the genitals. So yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, I think it's your choice. Um, I do enjoy being hairless, as I mentioned, but, you know, is that societally reinforced? Probably, you know, how much of it is actually my own preference and how much of it is me having been bombarded with images of hairless vulvas my entire life. And, you know, I don't know, maybe even like wounding from childhood for being made fun of for having a unibrow or like kind of thick arm hair or shit like that. I don't know. I don't know. Um, But yeah, no matter what, I really think your partner should be accepting of you and your natural state of being. I am so turned off by men who are squeamish about body hair on women. Like I remember when I was dating band guy, um, also if it's your first time listening, all the men have nicknames. When I was dating band guy, one time we were in bed together very early on one of the first few nights and my legs were a little stubbly. And I was like, oh, by the way, like, sorry that my legs are always stubbly. And he was like, oh yeah, no, I mean, it's cool. But like, like you could tell he was very like, oh, I'm okay with it. But like most men wouldn't be okay. But like, I like you so much that like, I'll let it pass. And I was like, I like, it was, I mean, I should have immediately listened to that red flag because a man who also he had never had sex with a girl who was on her, her period, which I do remember immediately wanting and trying to end things with him because I was like this is a massive red flag to me like I just I don't like men who want their women to be these like prim proper like the type of men who are like girls don't poop like not my thing I like openness in my relationship like yes I have body hair yes I'll make an effort to remove it but if you are squeamish with it like we're done like if you're squeamish about periods we're done if you're if you think I don't poop you could be accurate because I have a very hard time having bowel movements speaking of which (laughs) one of these times that we were at the beach I was laying down on on the sand you know as one does at the beach if you're not in the water and I was like oh you know what I should meditate while we're here like what a beautiful setting like I can hear the waves crashing and there's sunlight you know just drown I don't know sunlight on me (laughs) and it would be amazing and so I close my eyes and you know I'm doing some deep breaths whatever I'm like really sinking in all of a sudden I feel a wet heavy plop 
on my leg. And without even opening my eyes, I knew exactly what it was. A bird shot on me. Now, I will say I was shocked at how heavy it was. It's not the first time a bird has poofed on me, not to brag. I know they say it's good luck. So like your girl must be lucky as fuck. It is the third time a bird has pooped on me, but the previous two times happened in the city. Um, not in New York city, actually in DC. It was back when I lived in DC and they were pigeons. I guess seagulls have much heavier shit than pigeons do because it was, it was shockingly heavy, honestly, is the only way I can describe it. And I have to say, I think it is fucking wild that birds just fly through the sky and shit as they're flying. Do you know what I have to go through to use the bathroom? I go inside my bedroom. I close and lock that door. Then I go in the bathroom that is in said bedroom and I close that door. I turn on a fan. I turn on the lights. I spray poopery inside the bowl. I sit down with my phone. Could not even imagine pooping without having my phone on me. I pull up my, um, what's it called? The thing, the thing that you put your, the squatty potty. Yes. I put my feet on the squatty potty. I may or may not play a podcast, but I definitely am going to be playing a game on my phone. All of that just to be able, and like I do deep breathing, like all of that, just to be able to take a poop. These birds are just shitting as they're flying. What the fuck? Imagine that level of freedom. Imagine that level of your colon working so seamlessly. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I quit vaping. Um, It's been a minute now, right? I feel like it's got to be a couple of months at this point. No. Um, And you know what? If you're someone who vapes nicotine, let this be a sign to you to quit vaping. It is everything of the sort. You'll feel so much better in every single way if you just quit vaping. Um, But you know, the primary reason why I was vaping was that it would help me poop. And I just want to reiterate some of the things that do help me stay regular. And, you know, I really am. I mean, the other day, Ozzy was like, how often do you poop? Cause like every time you do, you act like it's this like massive celebration. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I do poop every day because of all the things that I'm about to say, but it just, it's not something that comes easily to me. Like, I feel like Ozzy could poop on command if he wanted to. <laughs> you know? And I mean, birds are just like flying through the skies, shitting apparently. So it just, it doesn't come that easily to me, but here are some things that do help lemon water. Honestly, I was so skeptical for so long. I'm now converted. I think the key is using a half a lemon for one cup of water. Like it has to be that intense. It's not like a few drops or whatever, and then give it a minute. It really does seem to help. Um, magnesium. I specifically like a magnesium oxidate. I want to say I'll link the one that I really like in the show notes. I really swear by it. Trifala is an Ayurvedic herb. It's actually a combination of three different fruits. Um, you can buy it in powdered form. You can buy it in capsules, whatever. It really does work. Um, chickweed is an excellent herb for bowel movements. Um, probiotics, just a quick little ad for seed probiotics. It is the best probiotic on the market. It has this patented technology that ensures that the probiotic actually makes it into your gut and can colonize in there. Most probiotics die during the digestive tract. I used to take these like fancy, super expensive probiotics that had to be refrigerated and had like, you know, 14 billion CFUs of probiotics or actually way more than that. I was trying to give an exaggerated number, but I think it's like a hundred billion CFUs actually, or if not more, and like, you know, 45 different strains. And let me tell you, someone said this to me once and I, it was this light bulb moment where they're like, well, if this probiotic dies outside of the fridge, how the fuck would it survive inside your body, which is way, way hotter. And I was like, Hmm, you have raised an interesting point. 
And it is true. Now, this probiotic does not need to be refrigerated. It comes with a prebiotic, which is the food for the probiotic, which helps it colonize inside your gut. It's good for the environment. It's good for you. And if you want to get it, you can use code BLUSH15, blush one five for 15% off. Help the podcast. Help yourself. Help the planet. Um, now what I would avoid are stimulant laxatives and, um, anything with senna in it. Like you'll sometimes find things that are marketed as being natural and they'll have senna in it. Cause senna is an herb, but it is, um, like it can cause dependence. Also aloe latex can cause dependence. Aloe juice is great. Aloe water is great, but, um, the latex part of aloe can cause dependence on it. Um, and then just the usual things like make sure you're hydrated, make sure you're getting enough fiber, make sure you're moving a little, a little walking can be great. Um, okay. While I'm recommending things, I'll just do my TV recs of the week. Also, I actually have nothing new, but I did think of some old things that I really, really enjoyed that if you haven't seen, I would highly recommend number one, the politician it's on Netflix. It's, uh, I mean, season one, I guess is a very ambitious, high school boy who wants to become high school president or whatever, president of the student body or whatever it's called. Um, You know, I assumed it was going to be about politics. It's not. And when I started it, I was like, this is dumb. Why would I be into a high school kid who wants to make it in politics? But it's really, really good. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. You know what it is? It's really beautiful. Like it's the cinematography, the layouts of things. It looks a bit like a Wes Anderson movie. It's just stunning. And it's made by the same guys who make um, American Horror Story. Um, which I also recommend, although it's like truly, truly terrifying. Like if you want to be just traumatized for the rest of your life, I absolutely recommend AHS. Um, if not, like probably avoid it. Um, there's a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man. One of the best documentaries I've ever seen, specifically an excellent documentary uh, about music. I don't want to give anything away, so I'm not going to say anything, but if you watch it, hit me up because I would love to talk about it. Um, If you have not watched the show Yellow Jackets, there's one season on Hulu. It came out, I don't know, over the winter, I want to say. Um, really fucking good, pretty disturbing, but stick with it. It gets easier to watch. It took me a while to get through the first episode. And another favorite documentary, The Jinx, possibly the best true crime documentary I've ever seen. It's on HBO. Check it out. I really don't want to give anything away. It's true crime. It's murder. It's fascinating. It twists. It turns. There's humor. There's entertainment. It's really everything you could ask for. Okay, moving right along. I went to see my family last weekend, and it is quite literally the best time I've ever had with my family in the 34 years that I've been on this fucking planet. It is the smoothest visit I've ever had with them. It was my niece's first birthday. That's why I went. And I do think that part of why it went so smooth is because my parents had other house guests in the house, like my mom's cousins were visiting and there was a little kid and, you know, there were activities and there were kids around all the time and there was chaos and like the most fun, pleasant way ever instead of the usual chaos, which is like everyone acting like psychos and bickering all the time and just like making me relive all of my childhood trauma. But I will say, I don't think it's purely coincidental. I do think all of the inner work is really paying off. And also, um, just two quick recommendations for when you're around your family. Number one, have some grounding, grounding techniques in place, whether that's like meditation, long walks, baths, you know, just a few deep breaths, um, some like tapping, like EFT, whatever it is, just have your, toolkit so that you can ground yourself. And number two, constantly remind yourself that you're an adult now and you're in control. And if shit's fucked up, you have the power to leave. 
you didn't in childhood, in childhood you depended on your parents for survival, you no longer do. So yeah, while I was home, I would watch movies on my lappy to fall asleep at night. Um, don't really do that at home ever, but you know, while, while I'm away, I have a tendency to watch TV to fall asleep. Anyway, I was watching How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and I used to fucking love this movie. Now, I don't remember how old I was when I when it came out. Like, the oldest I could have been is high school, could have been middle school. I have no idea. I fucking loved it. And on this rewatch, A, it was feeling super misogynistic to me. B, I realized... I was so obsessed with it probably because I was so obsessed with being liked by guys and like trying to mold myself into the type of girl that a guy would like, right? So to me, it was just such, it was probably like the Bible, right? It's like, don't do this, do this. Now, I think Andy, the main character in it is the stereotypical pick me girl, like Mm, super obsessed with sports. Like, mm, I don't like working at Composure Magazine. I don't want to talk about makeup and pop culture. I want to talk about things that matter, like war. And you know what? I am personally attacked by this because I I just don't like it. Okay. <laughs> what am I trying to say here? I don't think that pop culture and makeup and Uh, fashion and these things that are kind of like stereotypically female girly things to be into are any less noble than politics and war and these things. I think they're just different. They're all parts of life and they're just different. And this type of like judgment of it, I really think is kind of misogynistic. The other thing that I think is misogynistic is this trope of the crazy, clingy woman, right? Um, I think what we're actually seeing play out is a lot of anxious attachment styles, which interestingly enough is actually the whole topic of today's episode. Now, I did some research on this because I was like, there is such a stereotype around this, right? There's such a stereotype of like the crazy, clingy, anxious woman and the avoidant man. And there are studies on this and there actually are statistically significant findings that women by and large do tend to be more on the anxious side and men do tend to be more on the avoidant side. And no one has come up with an explanation. So I decided to come up with my own hypothesis of why this is. And obviously there are exceptions to this. I'm by no means saying that all women are anxious and all men are avoidant. I mean, attachment styles are, it's such like a broad topic. And if you want like a deeper dive on attachment styles, listen to episode 79. It's called attachment styles, everything you need to know to feel secure and at ease in relationships. It came out on May 24th. That does a deeper dive into the history of attachment theory, overview of styles and more. But you can have different attachment styles, like with different types of people in your life. Your attachment styles certainly can change. And like we all generally have like multiple attachment styles for multiple things. Like, you know, I always was like either anxious or more like fear, fearful, avoidant in romance, but like very like dismissive avoidant often in friend dynamics and then secure in other dynamics. So it it just depends. Anyway, I have this hypothesis that the reason that women are more prone to anxious attachment is because women were more likely to be overprotected in childhood and men were more likely to have their feelings dismissed and not nurtured and like their emotions not fully seen and accepted by their parents. So they're more likely to have avoidant attachment. Anyway, so last week, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, Ozzy was on a work project. Now, when he's on a work project, it means like he's on location for editing 
he has days that start around 6 a.m. and end anywhere from like 10 p.m. to like 1 a.m. And we generally don't talk a whole lot. Now, he'll usually call me at the end of the day most days. Um, We may text here or there. I mean, if I have something to say to him, I'll text him and he will respond. But like we generally don't talk because I mean, we don't talk, you know, that much. Again, like a once a day usually does happen. But yeah, it's not like a regular consistent thing. And, you know, like we live together. It's nice to have a little separation and then reunite. So this past weekend, I was thinking about it and I was like, what? Like, it's so crazy how, you know, a year, a year and a half ago and everything before then, if I didn't hear from a guy consistently throughout the day, I would absolutely lose my shit. And now we can be separate. And like, yeah, I mean, does he generally call at the end of the day? Sure. But like, am I sitting around and waiting for it? Fuck no. Like when I hear from him, it's great. And like if he doesn't call one day, I literally like it's like I'm so at peace, like I'm so comfortable, I'm so at ease. And I was like, wow, like what a fucking transformation. Like I've become so much more secure in relationships. And so I posted about it on TikTok and a bunch of people started asking me, okay, like how though? Which is my favorite fucking question. If you're not asking how all the time, like, and what really irks me is when people talk about something and they're like, but they don't really have a good answer for the how, because how is where it's really at. And so I spent some time really distilling exactly how I got here. Now, in today's episode, we're only really going to be talking about anxious attachment and fearful avoidant attachment because there's a good amount of overlap between the two. I'm not going to be talking about dismissive avoidant attachment because it's a whole different thing and it's like largely kind of opposite. So real quick, just some symptoms or signs of anxious avoidant. It's You question if your partner really likes you, and that questioning is accompanied with anxiety and worry. You might have jealousy. Um, You have a very high view of your partner and a low view of yourself. Um, You have a hard time listing anything negative about your partner. You want to be very accommodating and giving to people. You have trouble identifying and expressing your needs. You have a tendency to take on the desires, opinions, and traits of people around you. You seek approval and validation. You share a lot of personal information and or get very vulnerable early on. Maybe a bit of clinginess, highly sensitive to criticism, difficulty being alone, intense fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, difficulty trusting others, constant need for reassurance. Now, you definitely don't need all of these, but if a few of these resonate, there's a high chance that you have anxious attachment style. Um, fearful avoidance, some symptoms or signs are a fear of rejection, difficulty regulating emotions, contradictory behaviors. For example, telling someone to leave when you're in a fight, but then getting upset if they actually do leave or the opposite, like you storm off, but you're upset that they don't chase you. Um, High levels of anxiety, difficulty trusting, contradictory feelings. For example, you want a relationship, but you fear being hurt or left by the partner. A tendency to look for faults in a partner or look for reasons why it won't work right from the get-go. And a generally negative view of both yourself and of others. Okay, so I have kind of five steps laid out for how I feel like I was able to move from intense, intense fearful avoidance to largely secure within a relationship. Step one, and this is kind of dumb, but it's so fucking important, is an actual desire to change. And you may be thinking, yeah, of course I actually desire to change. But here's the thing. A secure relationship may look very different than what you're picturing. And I remember 
when I first kind of was becoming aware of attachment styles and codependency and things like that, I went to a relationship coach and I was like, yeah, like this is, you know, the type of relationship that I want. And I was like, pig, like describing it to her. And she's like, that to me sounds like intense codependence and intense, like anxious attachment. And that is not what a secure, healthy relationship looks like. And so I had a lot of resistance to this. I really, really did. But over the course of doing all this work, I realized how fucking right she was. And the thing is, when you have anxious attachment or fearful avoidant attachment, you have a lot of anxiety within a relationship. And when the partner gives you the validation that what you're of what you you want, the validation that they like you or whatever. It often happens like maybe if you get in a fight and you're making up or whatever it may be, when you're getting that actual validation, it relieves the anxiety that you're feeling. And the relief of that anxiety literally is like a drug. It gives you that hit of dopamine and it's quite literally addictive. And you have to be willing to quit that drug because what we see often, right, is that anxious attachment and avoidant attachment pairing. And for the anxious attachment, it's thrilling, right? They're like going through withdrawals when the avoidant isn't paying attention to them. But as soon as they come back and pay attention to them, it's a fucking hit of that drug and it is addictive. And that's why they say anxious attachments get bored with securely attached partners, because you're not getting that hit of the drug, but you have to be willing to quit and you have to be ready to quit. Take me with vaping. I quit vaping three times. The first two times didn't stick because I wasn't mentally and emotionally ready to quit. And so for you to be able to heal this, you have to actually be willing to quit the drug high that you get from staying in this state and having that anxiety relieved even momentarily. Okay, so once you get to the actual desire and you start to make peace with the fact that a healthy, secure relationship might look a little bit like bored, boring relative to what you're used to. The next step, and this is so important, is to understand where the attachment patterning comes from. Now, I do a much deeper dive into this in episode 79, if you want to go back and listen to that, but I'm just going to do a brief overview here. So with anxious attachment, you generally have helicopter patterning and inconsistent parenting. So with helicopter parenting, I mean parents who seek closeness with the child to meet their own needs rather than the child's needs. These are often overprotective parents. They might smother an otherwise independent child. They might be intrusive into the child's life. And basically what happens for the child is they receive the message that it is unsafe to be without their quote unquote, attachment partner. In childhood, your attachment partner is your parent. When you become an adult, your attachment partner is your romantic partner. So you still have that messaging ingrained in you that if we're separated, there's danger because that's basically how your parents made you think, right? The other thing that happens with anxious attachment sometimes is inconsistency. So sometimes the parents were supportive and responsive to the child's needs. Other times they were misattuned to the child's needs. The inconsistency makes it difficult for the child to understand what their relationship is and what to expect in the future from their parent. Now, I often think it's a combo of the two, and what I see most often is parents who are very physically present, who are very physically protective of the child, but are not emotionally attuned to the child's needs. Now, with fearful avoidance, that generally comes as the result of childhood trauma and abuse. It all lies on fear and perceived threats. Note, I said perceived threat, not actual threat. So if the child perceives one of their parents is dangerous, even if the parent actually isn't dangerous, that's enough. 
Um, this happens when caregivers usually show highly contrasting behavior, which is inconsistent and unpredictable. For example, a parent with a temper. This parent is often ki- calm, nice, fun, nurturing, whatever. But when they get angry, they yell, they might throw things. The kid never knows which one to expect. Is it the calm, nice parent or the angry, hostile parent? That is inconsistent and unpredictable behavior. Another example is a parent who is nice to the child, but also abuses other people, let's say maybe like the other parent in front of the child. The child sees the disconnect between how they're treated and how the other person is treated by the same parent. Basically, the child learns that they cannot rely on the caregivers to meet their needs, but at the same time, the caregiver does meet their needs sometimes and is often a source of safety, leaving this very conflicting, disorganized impression of closeness for the child. So once you understand where your patterning comes from and you want to really think about your childhood, journal on it, whatever, and pull up specific memories and like really see what your exact situation was. Um, Now you want to give yourself, so like step three is doing the subconscious work. And what I mean by that is you want to give yourself what you needed in childhood in a subconscious way. Now, I like to do this via meditation. The process is very similar to what I talked about two episodes ago. That was episode 87. Um, I like to start by taking deep breaths. Um, Specifically, I think you should inhale for a count of five, hold for a count of three, and then exhale for a count of seven. You want to repeat this a few times and keep increasing the length of the exhale. Ideally, you want to get to exhaling to a count of 10. That activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Now you want to picture yourself in a situation that makes you feel safe, secure, supported, and relaxed. I like to picture myself floating in the water. Um, another thing you could do is like in whatever your safe place is, like come up with a safe place that makes you feel calm, secure, protected. You could picture yourself inside the womb. You could picture yourself floating in the air. You could picture yourself climbing down into a cave. You could picture yourself in an elevator that is descending. Um, you could picture yourself grounding in some really nourishing dirt. You could picture yourself amongst trees and hearing, you know, birds chirp. Whatever it is, whatever makes you feel safe, secure, supported, and relaxed. Now, once you're in a deep meditative state, you want to visualize a childhood that's different from what you had and that addresses your specific wound. So for example... I have done this a lot where I picture parents who give me a lot of independence and let me run around and be free. Um, I've also done it a lot where I picture parents who are really calm and loving with each other and resolved conflicts in a really healthy and calm way. Um, I've also done it where I had parents who I could confide in about things and we had a very open relationship where they wouldn't get angry at me for random shit like my actual parents did. So you want to identify what it is that your parents weren't able to give you, not because they're monsters or assholes, but because they're human beings and they're flawed just like the rest of us. And you want to give that to yourself in that meditative state. Now you want to repeat this process daily. Doing this daily builds new neural pathways of a stable, secure childhood, the type of stable, secure childhood that would yield secure attachment. Okay, step four. This is kind of important and it's not the easiest thing to do. You want to break your fixation on romance. Now, both anxious attachment and fearful attachment or fearful fearful avoidant attachment are both really preoccupied with relationships. And so the anxiety that you feel comes from that preoccupation with relationships. I know like for me, if I had a crush on a boy, it was like kind of the most important thing. And if something was wrong with like a guy, it would consume me to the point where I couldn't even do anything else. And then when I was single, I was like so devastated over being single that like it was, it again was just consuming me. There was such a preoccupation 
with my romantic life. And for me, that fixation really broke when I started dating Van Guy. And it just like had this like light bulb, like it just clicked into place moment for me where I was like, fuck, being in a relationship, like no matter how nurturing, whatever this relationship is, will not fix all of your problems. Like it just won't. And so it just really, really clicked into place for me in that moment. But what I recommend doing, number one, is look at the other like kind of areas of your life and see what you're neglecting. Um, I really recommend looking to Caitlin Bebb for this. She is a life coach and she talks about this a lot. So look at like your career, spirituality, health and wellness, family, friends, and relationship. Relationship is just one aspect of a well-rounded life and see like what areas you're giving more love to and what areas you're not giving enough love to. And by the way, I really recommend working with Caitlin. I know I talk about her all the time, but that's because she's actually really fucking awesome. Anyway, so that's number one. But number two, I want to hit this What you're actually doing when you're kind of preoccupied with romance is you're placing happiness outside of yourself. And I don't want you to replace that with career or with, you know, exercise or with something else, although those should all be aspects of it. What I actually want you to do is rewire your brain to see yourself as your source of happiness and contentment. And so I remember like, I don't know, a couple years ago or whatever, when I'd have anxiety, like especially if I was like laying in bed trying to fall asleep and I had anxiety, I would picture like my partner or like a fictional partner maybe soothing me or I'd just like always picture the source of like comfort and ease and fun in my life to come from a partner And then at some point I started replacing that with the highest version of myself. So like if I was like feeling super, super anxious and felt like I needed a hug and I was alone, I would picture the highest version of myself hugging me and comforting me. Like I would visualize my highest self as comforting my childhood self. So that's something you could incorporate. And also you really want to find ways to self-soothe. And I just want to note self-soothing is not numbing. You don't want to ignore your feelings. Rather, you want to give them space to be without overtaking you. So things like journaling, long walks, baths, letting yourself maybe even like fully spiral for three minutes and then, you know, sitting there and being like, okay, how realistic is this scenario and getting real with yourself, whatever it is, you want to find self-soothing tactics. You want to really connect with yourself, connect with the childhood version of you, connect with the highest version of you and really create that strong relationship there. Now, step five is the conscious work. Now, this has three elements to it. Number one, you want to establish healthy boundaries. This includes boundaries with yourself. Anxious avoidant types have a tendency to overshare and try to connect too deeply too early on as a way to manufacture intimacy. I don't want you to veer too far in the opposite direction, but do try to be mindful of this and let the relationship evolve slowly when you're dating someone. Keep things light in the beginning and increase intimacy gradually. I also recommend making a list of your core values and identify like really what's most important to you in your life and uphold them fiercely. This is both with romantic partners, but also literally with every single person. So for example, if self-care is a core value to you, then don't say yes to anything that would intrude on your self-care. For example, one of my core values is having 
a nice home, like nice things. Like I just, I'm really into aesthetics and like organization and I don't know, color theory. I don't know. I'm a Taurus son. Like I'm just really fucking into aesthetics and a lot of the things that I like, like I'm really into quality over quantity and I like to have nice quality things. Now, part of that involves not spending money on shit that doesn't mean anything to me. Right. So I like have had so many people ask me if I want to like go get a manicure as an activity. I don't enjoy manicures. It's not what I want to spend my money on. So like I am really fierce about being like, no, actually, sorry, that's not an activity that I enjoy doing. But would you like maybe want to go get a drink instead? Because that is an activity that I do enjoy doing, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, like really like having these boundaries, like knowing what's important to you and enforcing those boundaries. Now, the second prong of the conscious work is to choose a secure partner. Anxious attachment types, as I've already talked about it, have a tendency to date avoidant attachments. I do a much deeper dive into this in episode 79, so I'm not going to repeat it now. I'm just going to go over some signs that a person is secure, they're reliable, and they're consistent. They may not be perfectly attuned to your needs, but if you voice your needs, they will meet them. They're able to communicate effectively. They're not mistrusting, but they also don't become too vulnerable too early on. They're able to regulate their emotions. They don't stonewall. They don't dismiss. They are not critical and they're not defensive and they show a desire to get to know you. So look out for all of those things. And the third prong of the conscious work is to really communicate your needs. You want to be clear, you want to be concise, and you want to be direct. Now, to be able to communicate your needs, you have to understand your needs first. And what I really recommend here is it like, let's say you're dating someone, take a behavior that they're doing that's making you anxious and ask yourself why it is making you anxious. What feelings come up? What fears come up? And I'll give you an example. So um, for anyone who's kind of new to the podcast, Ozzy and I dated for a couple of months uh, starting November of 2020 up until January of 2021. And then he went back to Australia for a while and we kind of lost touch and I started dating Van Guy. And then um, I broke up with Van Guy and Ozzy and I started hanging out again June of 2021, like the very beginning of June of 2021, um, and just like very effortlessly fell into a relationship. Now, when we were dating the first time around, I was playing a ton of games. I was like very unaware of my own needs, let alone communicating them, yada, yada, yada. More on this a different time. But um, Ozzy is just not like the most chatty guy. Like he just isn't. And I remember the first time around, it would make me absolutely fucking spiral if I didn't hear from him regularly. And when we started dating, like when I started doing work on myself, I guess I should say, I really had to sit there and be like, okay, why is not hearing from him making me so anxious? Because it's not like I really want to be chatting all day. Like I don't even really enjoy texting. So what is it here? And I realized ding, 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 not hearing from him is making me think that he doesn't like me. He doesn't want to talk to me. Like he's not interested in me. He's not thinking about me. It's not because I actually want to be talking all the time. It's because the talking to me symbolizes that he is thinking about me. He likes me. He's into me, etc. So then in June of 2021, when we started hanging out again, I was very like aware of this need that I have and why I have that need. And I was able to communicate it. And I was like, hey, listen, like I really enjoy hanging out with you. I want to be honest, though, if I don't hear from you every single day, I start to worry that you're not actually into me. So do you think you could make an effort to text me every day so that I still feel secure? Guess what? He texted me every fucking day. Um, and now I also want you to note how I presented this. I really like this formula for presenting things. You start with a compliment, 
You then explain how you're feeling and then you end it like with a question like, do you think you could do this? That gets them to affirm it. It gets them to understand your feelings and like why you're feeling that way, what fears there are. And it literally gives them the blueprint of what to do. So like another example, this wasn't the case for us, but like just a hypothetical thing that I see happen a lot. Like example, I really enjoy spending time with you, but when you make plans at the last minute, it makes me feel like I'm not a priority. Do you think you could make an effort to schedule our dates ahead of time? Really simple formula for communication, but you know, you first have to like really get real with yourself about what is bothering you and why it's bothering you, what fears are coming up, and then communicate them. And here's the thing, the biggest fucking green flag there is on the face of the fucking planet, in my opinion, is someone who hears your needs and your wants and adjusts their behavior to meet them. That to me right there says every fucking thing. And if someone cannot, it's not really that they're a bad person. They just can't meet your needs and you have all the answers you need right fucking there. So there it is. My five-step plan, how I went from being deeply, deeply anxious in relationships, extreme fearful avoidance behavior. I mean, just hot and cold all over the fucking place, a goddamn nightmare to date to being largely fucking secure in this relationship. And guess what? If I could do it, anyone on the face of the fucking planet can do it because your girl was fat shit crazy. I mean, as crazy as it fucking gets. I mean, how to lose a guy in 10 days crazy style I try not to be. I try to be like the cool, calm, collected girl, but eventually I'd snap and all the fucking crazy would come out because you can't suppress things forever. Eventually it'll come out. All you can do is heal so that you don't bleed all over everyone. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you took something from it, please share it with someone who you think would take something from it. I want, honestly, like in all seriousness, The amount of time and energy that I have wasted in my life being anxious over dudes, like that feeling of like something not working out. Like let's say you're talking to a guy and it falls apart and just like you just feel like utter shit and you feel like you can't do anything or you're just like waiting to hear from someone and it's like taking up your entire thoughts your whole day. Ah, like I don't want anyone to feel like that. I've spent so much time feeling like that. I don't ever want to feel like that again. I don't want anyone else to feel like that. So if you feel like that, if you know other people who feel like that, try these. These five steps will get you there. DM me if you have any other questions. Um, You know, Instagram links are in the show notes. DM me. I'm always down to talk about your specific situation, et cetera. You know the drill, guys. Rate, review, subscribe. I know it's annoying, but leaving a review does so much to help the show. Love you guys. Talk to you next week. Bye.